today we wanted to talk about the value of honor. Honor as a value. And um, I just really believe this is important. I, I, I value this so much personally. And so really I just want to share a few things from my heart that I would love to see us commit to build around as a church family to say this is who we are. You know, have you ever seen those, um, those signs that are very popular these days? Um, they're probably a little bit overdone these days now, actually, but, like, there's that sign that says, in this house, we do happy, we do, you know, forgiveness, we do sorry, you know. You see those things everywhere now. It was kind of interesting when it came out, but, but that's sort of what we're doing with this value series is to say, in this house, this is what we, this is what we believe in. This is who we are. This is what we value. So just to start out, the, the definition of honor really is just simply to recognize and place value on something or someone. That's what it means to honor. To recognize basically the value that is there, but then also to place that value from your own heart onto that person or onto that thing. That's what it means to honor. And I just want to read a statement that Paul read last week. We are a local community of Jesus followers, a family on mission to see healing and rebuilding in the people of Detroit and beyond our borders. We are a local community of Jesus followers, a family on mission to see healing and rebuilding in the people of Detroit and beyond our borders. And today we really just want to focus on the part that says we are a local community. We are a local community, and we want to talk about that in the context of honor. What does honor look like for us as a local community? We want to emphasize that today. Scripture teaches us to honor, again, the definition of honor being to recognize and place value on someone. Scripture teaches that, and we see honor in Scripture. We first see it in the Trinity. We see that the Holy Spirit reveals Jesus to us, brings us closer to Jesus. The Son, Jesus, honors the Father, and the Father has given Jesus the name, the greatest name and the greatest place of honor. So there, honor is the culture of the Trinity. Honor is, honor is the culture of heaven. So when we want to have a local church that represents heaven, that represents our God, honor is a big piece of that. It needs to be part of our culture as a local church. Honor um, needs to show up in the way that we live our lives with each other and in the way that we act. And so then from that culture that you see in the Trinity of honor, God bestows honor on human beings. He made us in his image. He laid himself down, gave everything that he was, gave his own son. Jesus gave his own blood, bestowed the highest honor on human beings. So they honor one another they honor us. They, they show honor to us as their creation. And so honor needs to be in us as we represent them. And scripture teaches us many different ways that we're to honor. Scripture teaches us to honor God, our Father. Scripture teaches us to honor our parents. Scripture teaches us to honor our marriages. That's in Hebrews 13.4. Scripture teaches us to honor God-given authority. Scripture teaches us to honor each other, to honor one another. And Scripture teaches us to honor all people, to place that value upon all people, 
to recognize the value that is there because God values all people. You know, and I think this is one of the things that has been so hard personally for me, to be honest with you, over the last 12 months in our nation with social media and what's happened with the elections. And I think that's what's been so hard for me personally, sickening to me, is the lack of honor that people have for one another. And that I hope that as representatives of God that we can honor people. You know what I mean? Um, From the least to the greatest in society, I believe trust is earned, but honor is something we give to people simply because they are a person. I don't have to trust you, but I'm going to honor you as a person. I don't have to agree with you, but I'm going to show you honor because God shows you honor because you're made in his image. Um, you know, I just think that's so important in, in, in all aspects, even in, our, in the workplace. You know, my boss might be a really difficult person. I might not agree with the way they operate the company or, you know, the way they're even treating me. And I can communicate those things even, but I need to honor the person. And I need to not only honor face-to-face, but I need to honor in the way I speak about people. That's important, too. I think it's so important in a local church. You can know that Paul and I, we're going to not only honor you to your face, but we're going to honor you when you're not around as an individual. When we talk about you, we're going to honor and represent you well. Does that mean we're never going to have problems or issues? Not necessarily, no. We might have to work things out, but we will honor you. And um, let's, let's agree to that as a family. Let's let that go deeper than just what I'm saying for me and Paul in the same way that we would in a, under a roof in a household. Let's, let's let that be who we are as a congregation. Um, something that we have said in our home and we've talked about it with the church planting team that we meet with regularly, the team that's helped us to plant here locally, um, and something that we'd like to say broadly as a thing. But how is it said? Is it said with honor, or is it said in a way that shows dishonor? And so I think that's a safe place. I think that creates a place of trust and intimacy and real authenticity, like Paul spoke about last week, authenticity of relationship. But let's check ourselves, and communicate in a way that shows honor to people. Ways that we show honor in our daily lives with people that we do life with, we show honor by sticking to our commitments that we've made to one another. We show honor, um, like if something comes up that I need to back out of something I've committed to do for you or with you, that's fine, but I communicate that I need to back out of that, and I take responsibility for the implications that that now places on you. I do whatever I can to take responsibility for those things. Um, We show honor by answering one another's messages. It's true. If you send me a message and ask me a question, I get back to you. I try to live by the 24-hour rule that if I can't get back to you right away, at least say, hey, I'm going to get back to you. You know, it shows honor and respect to one another as individuals. We listen to one another when one another speaks and shares. We listen to one another's opinions. We listen to one another's hearts. We show honor and value. We say sorry when necessary. We say, I'm sorry for that. I'm sorry that that inconvenienced you. I'm sorry that that what I did was difficult for you. I'm sorry that I hurt your feelings. We show honor to someone's feelings. 
These things may seem small, but they make a big difference in a relationship. And I think most of you would, ag would agree. We expect that in the homes where we live. I believe we should expect it in a spiritual family, in a church family as well. And we decide and we make a choice to honor people. So in a local church, how do we show honor? In a local church, we honor scripture. In this local church, we will always honor scripture. In a local church, we honor gathering together. We don't just treat that as flippant, you know, like, uh, I'll go when I feel like it. We honor that because we recognize that's our family, that's relationships. It's where we come together to experience God, to hear from God. It's a value that we honor because scripture teaches it, but also because our hearts are knit into it. We honor the presence of the Holy Spirit, what he wants to do, sensing his heart, not just what we want to do, but what does the Holy Spirit want to do? What does he want to lead us into? What does he want to say? Who does he want to minister to today? We honor leadership. We honor the role that God's given. That's one of the ways we show honor in a local church. And we honor all people. As God's representatives on earth, we have to show his heart to all people. People we disagree with, people we don't like, people we're different than, people that we don't understand, we show them honor anyway because he has honored them enough to give his life for them. So we show honor to all people. So honoring is not something that we do because that person needs honor. Honor is something to do because we need to honor. We need to show the honor. It does something in our hearts. We need to have that heart posture of honor. It's godlike. It creates the image of God. It, it shows the image of God. It, it aligns our heart with our God, with our Father. When we show honor, we're bowing our knee to God. We're bowing our knee to Jesus. We're saying, Jesus, this is who you are. I'm choosing your way, even though my feelings might not feel honoring. I'm going to honor. I'm going to reflect your heart and that, that willful um, bending of our will changes us more into who he is. It gives us more of his heart. So honoring is not only for the benefit of the one honored, but really it's something that we benefit from. And I'll, I'll prove it to you by scripture. I know most of you, especially if you've grown up in church, have, would have heard this from your parents. But Ephesians 6.2 says, Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live on the earth. So honor benefits the one who is honoring. And if you're a parent, you know that's true. If you're trying to get your kid to do the right thing, it's not just that you're trying to control them. You want good for them, right? You want to help them. You want to preserve them. You want to save their life even, you know? So we know that as parents, that honoring is good for our children. It's the same for us. When we choose to honor someone, it's good for us because it teaches us to go in the right way and it sends us down the right path when we honor um, another example is Hebrews 13, 17. It says, yield to those leading you and be submissive, for they watch for your souls as those who must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Anyone who's ever been in any level of church leadership, that's a very sobering scripture. That's something that we've talk at, talked about, Paul and I have talked about many times, that, that we give account before God for those that we lead. 
That's a very sobering position to be in. But the instruction here for all of us is that we would be yielding to those who are leading. You know, even in a local, um, even in a specific moment in, um, in a service, you know, as we develop more and more as a local church and we'll eventually have other leaders set in place, other pastors, other elders, and you'll see more and more of that yielding that happens. Even, you know, like for instance, if there's another pastor set in place, that person might be leading a, me- a meeting in a particular moment. And you would see me or Paul yield to that person who's, who's leading because they're set in a role for that moment. They have a job to do. We don't want to be difficult and pull against that. We're going to choose to yield and follow. So it's never about the personality or about giving, um, giving honor to someone for the sake of their ego. It is always about unity. It's always about what needs to happen, about moving in the same direction, about, as it says, um, do it so that they can do it with joy and not with grief. Have you ever tried to lead your kids or lead a situation and it's just like causing grief because it's like hurting cats? Nobody wants to go in that direction, you know? So when we choose to honor and we, use, we choose to say, okay, this is a role given by God. They're responsible. I'm going to go in that direction, obviously, unless you know, you can't for moral reasons or whatever, but just for the sake of being willing to go and to, to, to move together and to allow those that need to lead to actually do that, obviously discussing things that need to be discussed, but once decisions are made or once, once things are moving in a direction to yield our hearts to go in a place of honor, it's profitable for us. That's what it ends up saying. It's profitable for you when you can honor, when you can yield. Um, and I just want to share a story with you quickly before Paul comes um, of, of an example of that in our own lives of where yielding and honoring really paid off big time. Um, in 2001, we had been married a year, and we moved to Dublin, Georgia, which was a small town. And we've referred to different parts of the story at different times, so you've heard some of this before. But we moved there and um, we really felt very strongly that we were directed to live there um, by God, you know, as we were following him and seeking him. And just to become a, a part of a local congregation that was there, there was something really special happening at that time. People were actually moving there from all over the country, even though it was a small town, to work with this particular ministry. They really had a gift to just develop people in different areas of ministry and, and discipleship and those things. And so we realized, you know, that that was probably something God wanted to do in us, and we really felt called to live there. We thought we'd probably live there a year or two and then probably move on to serve in some other ministry or possibly even start a church somewhere. We had no idea we'd be there seven years. So it was a small little town in Georgia. Paul and I were both raised in large cities. We love cities. Um, it was a very slow town, small population, country people. Precious people, lovely people, but just we felt like we just did not fit in. We didn't enjoy living there. We loved the people, had good relationships, but we didn't enjoy the city itself, and we didn't really want to be there. So we didn't know it would be a seven-year process. I take you back to the beginning of the story. When we first moved to Dublin, Georgia, we were looking for a house to rent. We were driving around, and there was this one particular cute little cottage that I absolutely loved, and it was for rent, and we found out it was very affordable. We were so excited, and um, 
Paul had made note of the address. It was 212 North Calhoun. And for whatever reason, as you'll hear our stories through the years, for whatever reason, numbers have often been very significant for us. God has often used numbers to get our attention or to speak to us about things. So when Paul noticed the address was 212, he said, I feel like there's something about that number. I'm just, I don't know what it is. So he started going through, like from Genesis, looking at Genesis 212, you know, and then all the way through the books until he came to 2 Kings 2, verse 12. And that's where Elijah had said to Elisha, follow me, and if you can see me when I'm taken up into heaven, then what I, the, 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 um, the mission that God has given me here on the earth, you're going to get the double portion of that. Scripture refers to it as an anointing or God's ability to do something that he's called you to do. So Paul really felt that that was significant because we had felt that we were supposed to be with this ministry, be with this particular couple who were leading it, the Coxes. And um, Paul really felt like this, you know, there's something to this, that we're supposed to be here to receive something from them, from God, but through them. So he was sharing that with Ferris Cox a couple days later, and Ferris says, that's funny. He says, my extension in the office building is 212. So we were like, hmm. That's interesting. So a few years later, I guess it was like three or four years later, we've already been there longer than we thought we were going to be, we ended up buying the house next door. The house next door went into foreclosure. We loved it. So we moved out of the house we were renting and literally moved across the driveway to 214. So Paul looked up that verse in the same passage of 2 Kings, now verse 14, 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 14, and that's where... Elisha has seen Elijah go up into heaven, and he picks up his cloak, he picks up the mantle, the anointing, and he strikes the water and performs his first miracle. So the interesting thing that was happening at that time is that our leader was actually moving away from the town. He was moving an hour away to take the leadership of a local uh, theological seminary, and Um, So it was a time where there was sort of a handing over. There were new people coming into positions within the church. We had been brought into the pastoral team. We were ordained at that time. And there really was a sense of picking up who God had called us to be and receiving, you know, what was to be handed down to us. Um, But here's the thing that I want to share with you, is that during that same season of time, when we had moved into that new house there was such a stirring in us, and I, think, I guess it's some, maybe like it is in the teenage years, you know, when teenagers want to get out and go and, and do their own thing, and they realize their abilities, and they realize their freedom, and they want to go do. There was such a stirring in us to go, and to leave, and to do, and, you know, I, I can remember praying at times, saying, God, I think you have forgotten that you left us here. You know, you've forgotten that you brought us to Dublin. We're still here, you know, You've forgotten that we're here, and I know that you don't want us to live our whole lives here. I know that. So we need to go. You know, it's time to go and go do other things. And there were several opportunities that came up that were good opportunities. Opportunities to move. There was one to move to Texas to lead a ministry there. Uh, There was an opportunity to move to South Africa at that time um, to work with a ministry there. And there was an opportunity to move back to the college town where we'd come from to start a church. So all three of those opportunities were good. They looked good. They were real opportunities. And every time we prayed about one of those opportunities, either Paul didn't feel good or I didn't feel good. But the point I want to bring to you is that we had taken it to 
our local leadership to the team, really, that led the church. It wasn't just like one person that led the church. It was a whole team. We believe in team ministry, not just one personality leading. But every time we would take it and submit it for others to pray with us because we believed in agreement, there was always the sense of, that's good, you're on the right track, but there was never a sense of peace that would come from that team. And we made a decision, Paul and I, in each one of those opportunities, even though it was very hard, we made a decision, we are not going to dishonor God's ways. We're not going to dishonor the community that he's called us to live in. We're not just going to all of a sudden go do our own thing. We're going to honor. And we felt, it felt like laying tracks for a railroad. That's the way it felt like, like hard labor with each one of those decisions. But eventually, the right thing did open up at the end of seven years, and the timing was right, the right opportunity. We did move to South Africa, and when we went, there was total agreement, total celebration, like 150% yes, this is right, it's the right time, it's the right thing, and we really were able to then walk into what God had for us with that mantle or anointing, you know, scripture refers to it, having truly received, not only learned a lot of lessons and things like that, but also the blessing, you know, just the agreement that comes when you, when you honor local church, honor leadership and honor local church. That's something that we just have always lived our, our lives by. And when we moved to South Africa, you've heard of sh- a share before, it was as if we didn't skip a beat. You would think we would have had to start over. It was as if we didn't skip a beat. We were immediately involved in a local church in the same areas with the same um, opportunities that we had had before. And only God can open doors like that. And we really believe that it was because we waited for the right timing and we honored the counsel we were, that we were receiving. So um, that really is another way that we honor in the local church. We honor one another. When we ask one another to pray, we honor that for, as for real. You know, like, don't just, you know, pray for me. I'm making some decisions and then I go do my own thing. But we actually honor you know, Jamie, pray for me. Okay, tell me, are you hearing something? Like, what do you feel? Like, do you feel peace when you pray about that for me? You know, we honor God in one another, and we honor the local church, and we honor what he's building, and we don't just say, well, I'm going to go do my own thing now because I'm tired of this. How will that affect what he's doing here? Because if God is moving me on, he will always provide for the local. He will always provide, and so just to honor what needs to happen and the, the impact and the effect that our lives and the decisions that we make have on local church. So Paul's going to come and share some more on honor. And as he does, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but we have really felt that on Sundays, even though we're a small crowd right now, we have really felt that Sundays should be for the masses. And what I mean by that is anyone should be able to walk in these doors, feel comfortable, when, you, when we speak from here, it should be simple enough and backed up by Scripture to where no matter where anyone is, whether they're a believer or not, whether they um, are mature in their faith or not, they can receive something from what we're saying. So you're always going to get that from us. You should feel comfortable to bring anybody, no matter where they're at spiritually, and know that we're not going to assume that they know spiritual things. We're always going to back it up with scripture, and we're always going to try to give something that would be applicable to anybody no matter where they're at. Um, and, but there are times 
where we feel that on a Sunday we do need to go a little bit deeper into a few things. And I guess today honor might be one of those things. But even when we need to go a little bit deeper, again, we'll always back it up with scripture. We'll always give instruction in a way that anyone on any level can find what we're sharing useful to them. Um, And so what Paul's going to share today is specifically honor in a way that is very applicable to local church, and it's very applicable to where we are currently as a local church, an important way that we need to show honor. Thanks, Minda. So yeah, so this is going to be definitely different um, in the sense of, uh, like Minda just said, normally we're doing something that's for for anybody and everybody. This is amazing. (laughs) This iPad performed without fail until I stand here. What is that? Anyways, let that be a confirmation that what we are about to share is so worthy of being heard that there is demonic attack through the iPad to, uh, to, to get it not, but we are going to fight. Okay, so, uh, but anyways, Minda, Minda is right. This is a little bit different. This, so what we're going to be sharing about just for the next couple minutes is honoring the Lord with your possessions with, uh, with your increase, as the scripture would say, or with your income. And um, so uh, we, sh- we shared an email with the church a few weeks back where we went through a lot of the material that I'm, I'm about to, or a lot of the content that I'm about to share with you over the next couple minutes. Uh, but I feel, and we also shared with a group who meets in the midweek meetings uh, that we're doing, a lot of this uh, material. Uh, but I feel like it would be good to have a broader kind of, you know, some, not everybody is there, for everybody to be able to hear kind of the essence straight out of the horse's mouth, as it were. Um, and so I'm hoping, obviously, when you get into finances and that kind of thing in a church context, it is with a degree of controversy. There is um, a, a, certainly a lack of trust, and uh, for good reason in many cases, in church where uh, people have been exploited at the uh, pastor's ex, uh, benefit and, you know, misappropriation of funds and all these kinds of things. So it's almost like I want to start with just saying, I'm sorry that all of that has happened. Uh, and I do understand the awkwardness sometimes. However, uh, for me, there is this idea that I've even heard said recently about how when a pastor speaks about finances, uh, you know, maybe it's better to have somebody else do it because it's kind of awkward because people know that he's like financially supported by the church. I actually say nonsense about that. And here's my reason why. I think, I think that people should hear the heart and the beliefs and the values and the convictions of the church. And it's an us thing. It's what we're doing together. And it's a critical way, not only for how the church thrives and succeeds, but how anything in this world happens. I mean, you try to raise a family without income and uh, see how far that goes. You know, so, so it's just a normal part, and it is a critical part of God's purpose. It's not something that we should kind of try to, you know, sweep under the rug or try to skirt around. It's something that, 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 is a, that God has a purpose in and plan for. And so that's what we just want to share is I hope that you can catch some of the, uh, our passion and some of our heart um, with regards to how this thing works in the context of local church and really maybe more specifically where we are right now. So uh, as we shared in the email and, uh, and also in that midweek meeting, um, I don't know where it sets 
right now, but roughly about 30% of the budget of the church, the, the basic budget of the church has been covered by what appears to be kind of recurring gifts from within the church. Now, obviously, any local church is supported by the church itself in the, in the plan of God. It's not to say that a church plant can't be supported from external sources, and there have been some of that, even the, the way we've gotten to this point uh, at, this, at this stage now, uh, but ultimately the sustainable reality is that the church finances the church. Does that make sense? We need to be aware that our goal is not to sustain ourselves. Our goal is to, in the days to come, to be able to plant out from here other churches and that there could be people within this church who would be sent to plant elsewhere. We need to dr- dream and think big. Uh, with, rega- with regards to the plan of God, the will of God. So it's, but, but that's a sustainable reality. And so what my family is doing is uh, I'm scaling back at the moment and working w- very hard, can I say? Um, and scaling back what I'm doing with the church down to 32 hours a week so that we can make space for a, for a second, essentially, full-time job. Minda can't work a second job right now because John David, our youngest, doesn't get into a school until August of this upcoming the, the upcoming school year, so she needs to be with him. So it's so I'm going to be working um, a second job, and um, it's but no matter what I do, it's not going to make up the seventy percent difference. And so I believe as a church we are in a situation where where God has a leader or calls a family to plant, but ultimately it's kind of like some of that baton is passed over to those that he calls to be a part of that thing. And uh, so I'm wanting to share that uh, candidly, uh, and obviously there's no pressure upon anybody, but uh, at the same time, I think you deserve to know exactly what the, what's, what's up. So uh, no matter what we do, won't make up the, the other 70%. Church in the city in Chicago, you may remember Stephen Deborah Subworth, they've, they've prayed as a pastoral team, they've walked this relationship with us, they're aware of kind of the, what we're navigating through, and, and they have felt for a period of time, you know, a few months, that they're going to be sending support uh, our way. And then uh, 614 Church in Columbus, Ohio, you remember, may remember David Swart and kind of a crew that came and did some of the worship uh, during our, our launch service uh, are also doing the same thing. So it's awesome to have partnership, people linking arms with us, uh, throwing their support into what we're doing, and um, even the church that we led in Johannesburg financed a lot of the, um, the startup costs of the church, and uh, but, but so those people have been supplying into you and me, and, uh, and that's a, I say thank you for partnering and believing in, but let's carry this thing together and do this thing together. So uh, what we're going to be looking at is the tithe. This is, you could say, a value of the church. We value the tithe. We value the concept and the biblical precedent of it. It's not a law. It's not a duty. It's not a compulsory thing. It's a biblical precedent, and it's a very practical uh, institution, you could say, of how this thing works. Church works with tithing. And I've been around for long enough. Church doesn't work. It limps with a lack of it. 
And it's just a simple, you can go out into the remote areas of Africa, sitting under a baobab tree with a church that meets under it, and it's something that is so easy to communicate, to implement, to understand, taking a tenth of your income and, uh, and, and honoring God with that. And to the affluent person in suburbs of Switzerland, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's universally easily understood and applicable. It's an institution that God has given us, and, uh, and it works. So Proverbs 3, 9. Let's flip through some scriptures quickly. Is that cool? You still awake? I know you are, because after my wife speaks, it's riveting, and um, it's like a coffee in and of itself. So honor the Lord with your, Proverbs 3, 9, 9 through 10 says this, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits, if I could underline that in your Bible, first fruits, of all your crops. Let me pause there and, under, and explain this. This is speaking to a primarily agricultural society. In other words, these people were increasing because they had a farm and their increase was crop. Most of us here, and I know that urban farming is an increasingly popular thing in Detroit, but however, most people here aren't living off of urban farming. Is that right? Or Okay. So what this still translates if you're getting a salary paycheck at the end of the month, if you're self-employed and you kind of have maybe a different rhythm, if you're paid per week, whatever the case is, it still translates perfectly into our present-day scenario, the idea of first fruits. The idea is as income comes in, to honor God, and that word for honor simply means to place weight upon in the sense of not treating lightly. We don't want to treat God lightly. And one way that we treat him with weight is not just singing on a Sunday or praying to him. It is with our possessions and with our income that we honor him with the first fruits. And honor is when he has the number one place in our budget. That means before anything else is paid, we take off the top and give to him, which is securing the knitting of our hearts together with him, and when he has the number one place in our budget, he has the number one place ultimately in our hearts, because Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also, right? And as he has number one place in our hearts, that is implemented in, as a number one place in our lives. I would dare say that if we desire for God to take precedent first place in our hearts and our lives, and it doesn't affect, in this way of first fruits, our pocketbook, our finances, it is not going to happen. It's a pipe dream. He's not really going to have that first place in your life. It has to touch something that is so critical to all of our lives, our money. And so we want, as a value of the church, to honor the Lord with the first fruits. And I hope you can get that. Some of us have Excel spreadsheets to, to look at our budgets for the month and for the year and for the whatever. The, the idea of the tithe is that it's the first fruits. So if you look at with, with me, to Genesis 14, the origin of the tithe. just want to quickly look at this, that the concept of tithing in its, in its origin is to support and to honor Jesus and his ministry. So how many of you know that the church is called the body of Christ in the scriptures, meaning that the ministry of Jesus is played out today through local church? Do we believe that, or is that just like a little game that we play? The, the, so to honor Jesus today, if you want to honor Jesus, you honor people. You can't separate that. And we are the body of Christ. To honor Jesus' ministry today is simply to honor that part of his uh, body that he has placed you and me into. 
And um, so anyways, Genesis 14, this is where the scripture first mentions tithing. Now, why are, we, why are we bringing this up? Because there's something that some theologians call the law of first mention, which is to say this, that when something, some kind of a concept or topic is first mentioned in scripture, it's first chronologically first placement in scripture sets the tone and the precedent for the understanding of that topic for all subsequent references. Does that make sense? So when you, when you see a topic first mentioned in scripture, that's going to give you, it's almost like a cornerstone, the main core understanding of what that subject is all about. And so this is where tithing is first mentioned in scripture. It's before any law was given to the people of God. They had no moral code, no system of rights or wrongs. They had no, no revelation of such from the Lord. And in this place, the concept of tithing is instituted. Genesis 14, 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. When I say bread and wine, what do you think of? Communion. Exactly. The body and blood of Jesus. Melchizedek brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of the most high God, or the God most high. And Jesus is referenced as the, mo- the, the, uh, the, the final high priest in the book of Hebrews. This Melchizedek king of Salem, I would say is probably at least a type of Jesus, if not an actual appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. Where do I get this from? Because, well, look at his name, but this guy, we never hear about him before this moment. We never hear about him again after this moment by name. He just plops in out of nowhere into the life of Abram. He's the priest of the Most High God, as of that point, there was no other person following God other than Abram. He's the priest of the Most High God. And he, and he comes and blesses Abram, but his name is Melchizedek. If you translate that from the Hebrew in meaning, Melch, Melchizedek is king of righteousness. So in his name is king of righteousness, king of Salem. Salem, the, the early Hebrew term for or the, the, the Hebrew word, the Sal, word Salem, is actually linked to the word shalom. So we have king of righteousness, king of peace, or king of shalom, and Salem geographically would be linked to the holy city of the promised land of which Abram was searching for, Jerusalem. So here we have in this name, king of righteousness, king of peace, king of Jerusalem, clearly Jesus. What happens in that, in that passage? Jesus comes and blesses him. And it says, uh, excuse me, Melchizedek, who we believe to be Jesus, came and blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God, most high, creator of heaven and earth. So he brought something of a revelation of the nature and character of God that Abram might not have known up to that point. He had no revelation beyond that of who God really was. And praise be to God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Check this out. Then Abram gave a tithe of everything. So the origin of tithing is honoring and financially partnering with the ministry of Jesus. So let's look on, just a quickly kind of run through a couple other ideas of the tithe, and again, this is a key value for us as a church. It's how this thing works. How many of you are in this thing to win? To actually, to see it work. I don't like playing games. I'm not in, you know, for, I mean, not to say that I'm some high and mighty whatever, but, you know, we, 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 we weren't planning on coming to Detroit, 
<laughs> Can I? We weren't planning on going to South Africa, at least I wasn't either. God sovereignly spoke and led us into this thing. And we've moved from across the world to be a part of this thing. And I am sure that God has a pathway in front of us. But part of that pathway is putting stakes in the ground as a church of how we maneuver our way through into the course of his destiny. Tithing is a fundamental. It's how this thing works. And so tithing was instituted in the old covenant law as a way of financing both the work of God and those who, didn't, who couldn't support themselves. If you look with me quickly, Numbers 18.21 says, I give, this is God speaking, I give to the Levites all the tithes in Israel as their inheritance in return for the work they do while serving the tent of meetings. Most of you may not know who Levites were. The Levites were a portion of the priesthood. They were involved in constant, uh, dedicated work in the temple, especially with the area of worship, but other temple service. And God did not allow them to have a portion in the, in the land of Israel, their own place, because their inheritance was to work full-time dedicated in the temple. So in other words, for them to do what they needed to do in service to God, they needed the other remaining tribes to take a tithe of the land to give that to them so that they could do their work. Does that make sense? They depended upon the rest of the nation of Israel tithing. So it was tithing to God, but God says, I give a tithe to the Levites so that the temple would be able to run. And then you see in Deuteronomy um, 26.12, when you have finished setting aside a tenth of all your produce in the third year, the year of the tithe, you, and you don't hear this spoken often in church, actually, you shall give uh, it to the Levite, who we just referenced, the foreigner, in other words, somebody who is vulnerable and needs other people's help, the fatherless, somebody who doesn't have somebody taking responsibility for them and financially producing for them, and the widow, who is also in that same situation. People who need other people's support. That's part of the tithe, so that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. So 10%, which is the concept of tithe. You know that, right? What does tithe mean? Tenth. You can't tithe 5%. You can't tithe 18%. To literally give a tithe is just to give a 10%. You... This church gives 10% of everything that's given to it into things that are, some of which is, is helping to support the, the spread of the gospel, but a lot of it is also supporting things like JJ's House, helping kids here in Detroit, and um, uh, Ho- Haven of Hope that's helping uh, women who are uh, victims of, of brutal rapings in Eastern DRC that we're partnering with in many different ways to, to help see those situations who have been shunned by their society. So the part of the tithe is to help those who otherwise can't have their su- need support, including even the Levites, who without the support of the rest of the tribes of Israel would not be able to do what they did in service to God. So tithing is also to support those in full-time spiritual leadership. So look with me in 1 Corinthians 9.9. I promise we're about to wrap it up. Um, But uh, 1 Corinthians 9.9, where Paul is talking about the concept of, he doesn't reference tithe by, by name in this passage of Scripture, but he's talking about the financial partnership. And it says here, For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. So most of us have not been treading out the grain with an ox earlier this week. Am I right? 
So most of us maybe don't quickly see that imagery the way the Corinthians would. But the idea is an oxen is an animal of burden, or not a burden, but, uh, but has a yoke put upon it that helps to drive a plow to till the ground, right? Are we, are we there? And sometimes that oxen, in the process of moving that plow forward, is going to eat some of the wheat growing in front of it or to the side of it. And the scripture actually is mandated that the people of Israel do not keep prohibit an oxen from eating. Why? Because it's serving the farmer. It's doing a job and it needs that sustenance to be able to do it. So let it enjoy the fruits of the same labor that you're going to be receiving from. Let it be a partaker as well. Paul here says, is it oxen that God is concerned about? Well, I mean, God made oxen, so he is concerned about them, right? Yeah, and the rhinos and etc. Is it oxen that God is concerned about, or does he say it all together for our sakes? Who is our, is Paul and his team, who are dedicated to full-time work in the ministry. For our sakes, no doubt this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be a partaker of this hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing that we reap your material things? And then drop down a few verses, verse 14. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. And so, um, in a sense, um, let me, let me say, on the one hand, I'm going to be working in order to subsidize part of what we don't have here in the, in the church in the moment. It would be a miss, I think, as a spiritual leader to try to do all of that on my own and not say to the church, let's all do, let's all be obedient to the scripture. Let's all carry this weight together because the last time I checked, this isn't Paul's church. God may have called me to initiate it together with my wife and my family, but this isn't, this doesn't belong to me. It's his. And again, we're, for those who are called to be a part of this church, let's, let's walk in the ways of God and seeing this thing be what it needs to be. And financing is, is a part of it. So why is, why is that the case? I'll just say this. Statistically speaking, a church that has a full-time dedicated pastor, and pastoral family, whatever, is far more likely, statistically speaking, to grow and far more likely to reproduce itself in other church plants than one where there's a splitting of, of attention, a dividing attention. So, and I kind of have to walk a careful line in communicating this. Are we, like, you know, just dragging our feet through the dirt that we're going to have to learn, you know, I'm, I'm going to be doing a, another profession. And I actually think God and his wisdom is going to use it to connect me strategically with people in the community in ways that if I were full-time dedicated, I might not have that opportunity to meet people, right? So there's benefits. It's not like this is a horrible thing. However, let's get to a place where that becomes in some, one way, shape, or form, where, where that is not the case anymore. What we want is not just to meet our budgetary needs to where we can say, we've got it, guys. We are clearing our budget, and month to month, we can now go through the cycle again and survive. Our, our, why did God call this church into being? Let's hold it before ourselves routinely. It is to see healing and liberating in people's lives. And that people who have been living in some kind of broken situation 
become restored and they themselves become people who are ministering, rebuilding into other people's lives, starting a movement of that repetition to where ultimately we can even plant out of here and do the same thing in another city together through our partnerships. We want to see people, we want to see a team of full-time paid pastors in the days to come here in this church to carry the weight of what we're called to do as a church. So I, I know, I know like we're thin on the ground right now. I, I, I get that. Let's not think in those terms. And by the way, success isn't equated to when we have many numbers. We start doing the work right now. But I'm saying to get there begins with starting the right way here. That's the way this thing works. And so it's a thing of partnership and, um, and joint faith. We carry it together. So I'm just going to say that I've been reading the book of Nehemiah. We'll close with just this last little concept here. I've been reading the book of Nehemiah. And if you don't know, Nehemiah is a book in the Bible. And uh, it is a book specifically about a man or kind of a period of time in the nation of Israel where they had been overcome by another empire. That empire had overthrown Israel. They had destroyed the holy city of Jerusalem. Nehemiah was serving in a foreign king's court and he found out about the the situation of the holy city of Jerusalem and he heard this, that its walls had been torn down and its gates had been consumed with fire and the city of Jerusalem is now a reproach in front of the other nations and he was soul destroyed and he began to weep and he began to cry. And he began to give his cry out to God and ask God for a way to go and rebuild those walls. Now, what is Border City Church called to do? Rebuild. And Detroit has literally seen something of a tearing down and, uh, and, and a going through lows and is literally a, a ruins that are going to be rebuilt. And we're not called necessarily to rebuild real estate. We are called to rebuild lives in Detroit. Can you see that with the eye of faith together with me? We're called to do that together. And so I've been reading and studying this portion of Scripture. When that glorious wall was rebuilt, the gates were put back in place. The whole nation rose up to the challenge in one unified moment of, of reclaiming what is theirs and becoming who they are called to be together. They, they put those walls back in place. The first thing that they did was they began to consult with God for the first time in centuries about his word about his ways. And in that, they found this concept of the tithe, amongst many other things. And they wrote a covenant out that they would commit themselves to giving 10% to finance the spiritual leaders, the Levitical priesthood, to do the service in the temple, to make sure that that has its preeminent place, that hopefully they would never run away from God ever again, but they would honor him for the rest of their lives for the rest of their history as a nation. And even in a short period of time after that, Nehemiah left the country, he, and then he came back, and he, you know what he found? He found out that they were withholding the tithes from the Levites, who were supposed to be doing the temple ministry, and to survive, they weren't able to do their service in the temple. They had to go start working in another field. And listen to what happened here. Nehemiah chapter 13, I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. And so I rebuked the officials and I asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Now check this out. Was he saying, why are the Levites neglected? No, the concept of supporting the Levites was the house of God 
being in its place. I hope you can see that. If we are serious about rebuilding ruins in this church, let's get glean from this, excuse, sorry, in the city, yeah, rebuilding. Well, there are ruins being rebuilt in this church as well, I believe, in my life and in others. So if we're serious about it, let's glean from this biblical precedent of, of the picture of rebuilding ruins. Tithing is an important part of how it works. It says, Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts, and all Judah began to bring their tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil into the storerooms. And so right now, if you think about church planting, because I'm a part of a kind of a team of people who have been doing that for 35 years, know the ropes. Here's basically how it goes from an economical financial standpoint. Can we just speak practically quickly? Generally speaking, you have 10 consistently committed tithing households. You have an income for the church that can support the equivalent, a tenth of each of the household's incomes equals one household income, which would be the average, representing the average income of the people in that church or that community. So there's your formula. If you plant into a into, a, into a, someone's basement or something, or start where you have no overhead, no, no venue costs, no running operation costs, just, just a, a salaried leader, you need 10 tithing households. Generally speaking, it's that magical number. I mean, it's a dangerous way of saying it. Jesus had 12. Generally speaking, you need 10, 12 tithing households. You can have an infrastructure in place to, to cover something of venue costs, salaries, and, um, and uh, operation costs. This church right here has that in place. If all the regular attenders of Border City Church were doing it, we could be there today. So I, though I don't want to feel any, anyone to feel any pressure, you, you have to respond to Jesus, but that's the reality. We can do it today. So if I could just ask you to stand with me and let's pray. That felt like a crash landing, but uh, that's okay. We don't want to take uh, too much time. Uh, Rodney Lloyd, my father-in-law, uh, speaking to a group of people who were at that point talking about the situation that we've just been discussing, uh, said this on a, on a group text. Everybody know Rodney Lloyd, my father-in-law. He's, he's in Africa with... with right now doing ministry in South Africa and it's going to be going up into the Eastern DRC with the situation that I referenced earlier. And he sent this text to us, kind of a word for all of us. He says, I believe this is a test and God will provide in it. If it is possible without God, then it is not God. So uh, let's remember the situation that I'm talking about, some of you could be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this. This is normal in the ministry. Normal in the call of God. He loves to bring us into situations that are impossible because they do a work in our heart. It says, if it's po possible without God, then it is not God. Nida and I are in prayer and finances, are in it in prayer and finances. We are already tithing and giving to BCC and commit to sacrificial giving above the tithe for this season, and we challenge the rest to do the same. What are we willing to do without to take even greater ownership of establishing BCC? And so I just hope that we can all hear the heart that I think Rodney eloquently expressed there. What can we do to go without to take even greater ownership of establishing BCC? That's the issue. Establishing BCC. Why? So that there's some institution called B Border City Church 
No, so that we can accomplish that for which God has spoken, why he started this church. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the, the tr- reality of you being real. Lord, we want to recognize right here, right now, you are here in our midst. You are real. You are not a figment of our imagination. You, you hear what's going on. You have led us to this place. And we honor and worship you as our source, as our provision, as our leader, as the one who is leading us, the only way, one who knows the way, and you are the only one who is yourself the way. And so we are looking to you. And Father, I'm praying that grace right now, uh, that every single person in this room would respond to your grace. Not to any law, not to any compulsion, but Father, you are building your church and we want to we say, King Jesus, be king over our finances, be king over every single part. Lead us into our part in what you are doing in this city and through this church. Lord, we, we thank you even now that you most certainly have the way, you are the way. You lead us into your victory. That your name would be glorified in this city that your name would be glorified from the city. And Father, most importantly, that people would be healed, would be of, of broken places of their hearts, would be liberated from any form of captivity, would find their place in your destiny, and would become a rebuilder of ruins in other people's lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.